Well, once again, my name is Steve Tyra. Our senior pastor, Tommy Allen, is out this week, and so it will be my privilege to share the Word of God with you. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and so if you have Bibles with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 12. This and next week, we'll be finishing up Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses uh, 39 through 48. But before we enter in, would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the scripture this morning, and indeed, it is a challenging even a scripture that may seem harsh at times. And so we pray, Lord, especially that you give me your spirit, that I may speak your truth clearly, and also give everyone here your spirit, that we may receive the gospel of your son and be transformed by it. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 39, Jesus is speaking. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said to him, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to begin, um, as we often do, with a question. And it's a question to which the answer may seem obvious at first. So I want you to bear with me, all right? The question is this. What is your opinion of thieves? Now, I never really thought about this until moving to the Northwest. Before moving here, Becca and I managed to live in New Jersey and Los Angeles without incident. And of course, the minute we moved to Seattle, one of the first things that happened is our house was broken into. We came home one afternoon to find the windows smashed in and all of Becca's wedding jewelry gone. And my, it's safe to say my opinion of thieves at that moment was pretty low. And it's not necessarily improved since, which is why preparing for the, the scripture this morning was so challenging in a way, because it got me thinking just how many stories there are across many different cultures that cast thieves in a heroic light. There are many, many stories in which the thief is the hero. For example, if you're up on your ancient theology, you may know about a fellow named Prometheus, in Greek mythology, Prometheus was a god, actually a titan, who thought that Zeus, the chief god, was oppressing humanity. And so Prometheus becomes a thief. He steals fire from heaven and gives it to humanity and teaches them to defend themselves and care for themselves. And for that, Zeus punishes him horribly, and human beings remember him as a sort of martyr for humanity. Well, another example of a heroic thief that might be a little more familiar to you all is, of course, one of my favorite stories growing up which is Robin Hood. 
right? Robin Hood, by the way, is not his last name. It's a title, meaning brigand or bandit. And you probably all know Robin Hood's catch line, right? He steals from the rich to give to the poor, right? Robin Hood is a heroic thief. Think of how many movies in modern times have been made about Robin Hood. And who watches one of these movies and roots for the Sheriff of Nottingham? I never did as a kid. And it's interesting, even children's movies are made about Robin Hood. Think of what a poor example that is for your children, right? That this heroic thief is held up as someone to be admired. Well, speaking of children's stories, that actually brings us to my very favorite thief of all. And that is, of course, Bilbo Baggins, right? If you've read the story or seen the movie, and I do recommend reading the story, it's a lot better than the new movies, frankly. Bilbo Baggins is recruited by Thorin Oakenshield and his band to fulfill a very specific role. Bilbo is to be their professional burglar, right? The burglar chosen by the wizard Gandalf himself. And the whole story of The Hobbit, in a sense, is Bilbo living up to that calling. And by the end of the story, he has indeed become the greatest burglar in Middle-earth. He is able to steal from the dragon Smog himself. Bilbo has become the ultimate heroic thief. You can probably think of more examples. Actually, as I'm standing here, another one that occurs to me is the story of Aladdin, right? Another heroic thief. And you can probably think of more. And all of these uh, raise the question, why do we resonate with heroic thieves? Why do these stories that cast thieves in a heroic light um, touch us so deeply? And they are found across time and across cultures. What is it about them? Now, it would be a really interesting discussion to have over coffee, maybe, but the short story, I think, is that these stories are ultimately what C.S. Lewis called the good dreams of humanity. They're little glimmers of the Christian gospel that the Holy Spirit has sown throughout all cultures and times. In other words, these stories ultimately point us to the person of Jesus, and I hope we'll see that this morning. We're going to look at the story and the text this morning in three parts. We're first of all going to see Jesus deliver an ominous warning. Second of all, we're going to see an anxious question in response to that warning. And finally, we are going to see the tale of the divine thief. And by the end, I do hope you see how this theme of heroic thiefdom, if that's even a word, connects to the person of Jesus. And so let us begin with an ominous warning. I'm just going to reread the first two verses of the passage, verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, the first thing to notice about this passage is how abrupt the transition is. If you were here last week, you know that Jesus just finished a parable that Tommy Allen pointed out was unlike anything in the ancient world. Jesus tells this story of a master of a house who leaves his wedding feast to come serve his servants. It's this beautiful illustration of grace. And as we begin this morning, everyone is sort of basking in the warm fuzzies that came from that parable. And Jesus, being the kind of guy he is, immediately cuts them off. He says, but know this. And there's this abrupt transition that kind of catches everyone off guard. And then he proceeds to make two statements that are rather ominous. The first is he compares himself to a thief, and we're going to get to that in a while, so just put that aside for now. But the second thing he says is perhaps even more ominous. Jesus refers to the Son of Man. 
And at that point, all of those warm feelings probably turned very cold. Now, why would the Son of Man be so ominous? Well, to understand that, we need to take a brief look back at the Old Testament. About 500 years before Jesus, the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon, in the center of the Babylonian Empire. And at that time, a book was written about an Israelite prophet named Daniel. In the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, it records a vision that came to the prophet. Really, you could almost call it a nightmare that came to the prophet. And Daniel is standing at nighttime on the shore of the sea, which in the Bible represents really the domain of chaos and evil. So it's a very ominous setting right away. And sure enough, as Daniel watches, monsters, terrible creatures begin to come out of the ocean. The first one, it says, is like a lion, but with eagle's wings. Now that image would have been immediately familiar to Daniel and all his contemporaries. You see, a lion with wings was a symbol of Babylon. The Babylonians used it as a symbol for their empire, and you can still see it today in museums around the world because it's been preserved in their artwork. And so Daniel would have recognized this this has something to do with Babylon. And it becomes clear as the vision proceeds that all of these monsters represent great civilizations, great human cultures that are at war with one another. The monster's warfare represents the condition of humanity under sin, that we are always in conflict, which sadly is still true today, isn't it? And so just as it looks as if the the monster's warfare is going to consume the very earth, a new character steps onto the stage, and a new person enters into this drama. And we're going to pick that up in Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verses 13. You can look at Daniel 7, or I'm going to read it to you here. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Daniel has this vision that there is this mysterious figure, the son of man, who comes before the throne of God and is given power to crush the monsters. And he he is also given dominion over all God's creation. That would seem like very good news, right? The, 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 The monsters have been dethroned. But on the other hand, it's very ominous because the son of man brings judgment in his train. While the monsters are sort of ruling the earth, there's at least time to sort of turn towards God, to get right with God. But when the Son of Man comes, time is up. Judgment has come. And you notice that right after seeing the Son of Man, Daniel says, my spirit was anxious. Right? And 500 years later, at the time of Jesus, people are still very anxious about the Son of Man. Different Jewish groups at the time would would debate Who is this son of man? Who is this mysterious figure? Some groups thought it was Enoch, a character from the Old Testament who was said never to die. Others thought it was an archangel who would come to execute God's wrath on the nations. Others thought it was a human messiah, a warrior king, a son of David, who would come to throw out the Romans. All of these figures were suggested for the son of man. But in the midst of all this disagreement, there was one thing everyone seemed to agree on. Everyone sort of agreed that when the son of man comes you'll know it. His coming will be very 
obvious. He, he will throw down empires and reestablish you know, creation in all its glory. You can't miss it. Which is why what Jesus says here to the crowd and to his disciples is so very ominous. Because Jesus appears, if you notice, to teach the very opposite of that. According to Jesus, the coming of the Son of Man will be anything but obvious. Rather, he will sneak up on people like a thief in the night. He will be here before you know it, and there won't be time to prepare. You know, you can almost imagine Jesus delivering this line with a sort of smirk. He's like, you, you know, it might be happening right now, and you wouldn't even know it. And we know that this made people very uneasy, including Jesus' own disciples, right, because of the question that immediately arises from the disciples. And that's the question I want to look at next. I'm just going to read verses uh, 41, which is the question. I can turn to it here. And so verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, Peter, as he often does, pipes up and interrupts Jesus. That seems to be Peter's chief role among the disciples is Jesus' interrupter, right? And so he poses this question, Jesus, is all this stuff you're talking about, about the Son of Man sneaking up like a thief, is that for us or for all? There's two ways you could read this question. The first way you could understand Peter's question is he's asking, Jesus, is this just for us disciples or is it for everyone, including us disciples? The second way you could read his question, and this is the way I think is correct, is Peter is saying, Lord, is this stuff about the Son of Man, is it for us disciples or is it for all those other people over there, not including us disciples? Is it for us or is it for everyone else? In other words, Peter is seeking assurance from Jesus that all of this scary stuff about the Son of Man doesn't apply to him and his friends. And that actually makes a lot of sense if you consider the setting. Remember that the Pharisee guys that we've been talking about, the Pharisees, are still here, right? They're still gathered around Jesus and his disciples. Remember, uh, Luke chapter 12 opens up with Jesus saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They haven't gone away. And so it's really tempting and probably easy for Peter to assume, oh, Jesus is talking about those guys. Jesus means all of those people over there, the Pharisees. He, he couldn't mean us. He's saying, Jesus, sure, the Son of Man will sneak up on the Pharisees. They're, they're kind of idiots. But surely not on us, your disciples. And if that is the sense of Peter's question, then Jesus' reply to Peter is all the more interesting because his reply is really anything but reassuring. It's very unreassuring, um, in other words. And so I'm going to read Jesus' reply now in verses 42 through 48. And the Lord said to Peter, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, it begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. 
So Jesus responds to Peter's question about a parable with yet another parable. And you notice that this parable is considerably darker than the one that has come before. It's the story of a household manager. That's a very powerful position in the ancient world. Some of you may watch a show called Downton Abbey. First of all, why would you do that? (laughs) Second, if you do do that, you know that in great households, there are certain servants who are put over the rest of the servants. They're sort of chief servants. And it's very similar in in the ancient world, in the Roman world in some way. A household manager represents the master directly. The rest of the servants depend on him for for their very lives. You notice the servants don't even eat if the the chief servant, if the household manager doesn't give them their food, doesn't provide for them. And this uh, position is so powerful that its exercise, its use, can lead to one of two very different scenarios. In the first scenario, the household manager is wise and faithful. And so when his master returns, he receives an even greater portion of power and authority. He is promoted, in a sense, even higher. In the second scenario, which seems to be the one, frankly, that Jesus is focusing on here, the manager is not faithful. He begins to mistreat the rest of the servants, to live high on the hog, so to speak, and use the master's resources for his own enjoyment. And in that scenario, the master returns like a thief in the night, unexpectedly at an hour he does not know. And the manager then receives a pretty gruesome punishment. The verb here is dikotomeo, which means literally to cleave in half. It's often used of butcher shops and slaughtering animal carcasses. So you can imagine what the image Jesus wants here uh, for us to imagine. I'll just leave it at that. And, And the disciples at this point are probably getting very nervous. They're probably thinking, well, well, who's this household manager? What's he getting at? (laughs) Who does this represent? And in case there was any doubts about the matter, you notice how Jesus ends. He says, Peter, to whom everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying, Peter, not only does this son of man stuff, the son of man coming like a thief in the night, not only does it apply to you disciples, it applies especially to you disciples. In fact, the very privileges you have as my disciples will make you all the more accountable, will make you all the more on the hook when the Son of Man comes on that day when we have to settle accounts. That was the application, it seems, for the disciples at that time. And here's the rub. If you're sitting here and you're a Christian, that's the application for you too. That is the application for you as well. You know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this concept of stewardship, which is the responsibility we have as Christians in order to manage our resources wisely. As Christians, we've been given much. We've been given the very Holy Spirit, and we're responsible for sort of managing those resources wisely. We've been talking about stewardship in a very positive way for the last couple of weeks. This week is kind of the opposite side of the equation. This is maybe the more negative side of stewardship. And you notice here that Jesus' focus really isn't even money. I think Jesus has moved on from the topic of money. His story isn't about a manager who was given money. His story is about a manager who was given a position, was given a role within his community. And he's judged by how faithful he is in that role. And so the question I think Jesus would have for you this morning is, what role have you been given in your community? 
What gifts have you been given for the benefit of the community? For instance, are, are you great with kids? Maybe you should be serving over at Panther Lake Elementary, or maybe you should be teaching Sunday school or using those gifts in some way. Are you great at managing resources? Maybe you should be with the trustees, helping them out. Or do you just have a heart for the poor? Well, then I know the deacons would love to hear from you, or the Tuesday night dinner crew. Maybe you're just an encouraging person or good at praying. Well, I know there's a lot of grieving and sick people in our community who would love to have you come alongside them. Whatever your gifts might be, you can be sure that they have not been given to you for your own benefit. They've been given to you as a trust in order to use for the good of your fellow servants, for the good of the whole household, so to speak. And when the master returns, suddenly and unexpectedly, will he find us fulfilling those roles faithfully? Have we been faithful in the roles we have been given in our household? Now, I don't know about you, but if that was the only application from this text, I would probably go home pretty depressed. If the only message here was, do your job or you're going to get cut in pieces, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have a very good Sunday. Fortunately, there is one more thing we need to talk about this morning, one final point we need to address, and that is Jesus as the divine thief. I want to return in way of conclusion this morning to this image we started with, Jesus as the divine thief. It may surprise you to know, it certainly surprised me as I was looking into this, that of all the images Jesus chooses for himself, thief is one of the, the most common. It might even be the most common. Now, there are other images of Jesus that might be more familiar to you, like the Lamb of God. Those are things other people say about him, and they're true things. But in terms of what he chooses for himself, thief is right at the top of the list. Now, it's not just that, you know, a few weeks ago we saw Jesus compare himself to a strong man who breaks into another man's house and plunders his good, goods, sort of a classic image of a thief if there ever was one. There's this passage and similar ones throughout the Gospels. But even in the book of Revelation, the risen and glorified Jesus speaking through the Spirit, Jesus compares himself to a thief. In Revelation chapter 3, he says to the church, if you will not stay awake... If you will not wake up, then I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour at which I come. And that image, that, that statement, appears throughout the book of Revelation from that point forward. I think, though, probably the greatest commentary on Jesus as a sort of divine thief comes not actually from Jesus himself, but from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read to you um, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I think it relates very much to what we're talking about this morning. kind of sums everything up in a way. So this is 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, 
Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Do you notice how much overlap there is between what Paul says here and Jesus' parable? There's many similar themes, that that of drunkenness, right, of staying awake, of needing to be ready because the day will come like a thief. You know, the, the letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. They were written earlier than the Gospels. It, it's interesting to speculate whether this teaching of Jesus had circulated orally, right? Maybe Paul had learned it from Peter himself in Jerusalem, and Paul is thinking about this very passage when he writes this in First Thessalonians. But there is also a key difference from what Paul says and what Jesus says. Did you notice how Paul, after warning the church, you need to stay awake because the Lord will come like a thief. Did you notice how Paul concludes He says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In other words, Paul ends with grace. Wakefulness is very important. Staying awake in light of the Lord's coming is very important. But ultimately, Paul says our salvation doesn't depend on our wakefulness. Now, why does Paul say this? Is he just a nicer guy than Jesus? Well, Paul is in a different position. He's able to look back on the whole story, which the disciples in Luke chapter 12 could not know. Paul knows that at the end of Jesus' ministry, those very same disciples who were warned to stay awake fall asleep. They literally fall asleep as the day of judgment is coming upon them, as Jesus is about to be arrested in the garden. They're they're snoozing. Right? But then they metaphorically or they figuratively fall asleep to an even greater degree when they flee from Jesus as Jesus is led away to judgment. The day had overtaken them suddenly and they were not ready for it. But we also know that those disciples did not meet their end there. They were not simply cut in pieces and handed over with the unfaithful. And why is that? Well, Because Jesus himself was handed over with the unfaithful. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself was handed over with thieves. If you know, on the cross, Jesus dies a criminal's death. He's crucified with thieves on his right and left hand. Literally, he is made a thief in the eyes of the world. And that's perhaps when all of these hints about Jesus as the divine thief come together. You see, Jesus is the Son of Man who was coming. But he did not come in a way people were expecting He did not come as a warrior king or as a conquering archangel or as Enoch or anything like that. Jesus came like a thief. He snuck up on the world as the carpenter's son in a way nobody would expect. And because he came as a thief and he died as a thief, we don't have to fear his second coming, the second coming of the Son of Man. And so this morning, I want you to remember the one who bids you to stay awake It's important. It's a big deal for us to stay awake in light of the Son of Man's second coming, that we ought to be faithfully executing and managing the roles that the Lord of the house has given us. But I also want you to remember the one who has already come like a thief and who already has died like a thief for you so that because he has been put with the unfaithful, you don't have to fear being put with the unfaithful because he was pierced you will not be cut into pieces. And that hope, I hope you have peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this scripture. It is indeed a challenging scripture, full of um, things to ponder. 
And so we pray now as we look back on your first coming like a thief in the night in a way nobody expected. So too we anticipate and stay awake for your second coming among us when we will not expect it again and that we are caught being faithful when that day comes. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.